We are in the book of Philippians, chapter 4, beginning with verses 11 through 19. The inspired, infallible, and errant authoritative word of God says this. Paul writing, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ, who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I've received everything in full. And have abundance, and I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs, according to his riches and glory, by Christ Jesus. These are Paul's closing remarks to the believers at Philippi, and they're just yet more sentiments of his appreciation to a church that, as we have seen over the relatively four short chapters, was not a perfect church, but it certainly was worthy of apostolic commendation over and over again. As he writes his parting comments, his thanksgiving is directed at the Philippian believers' financial contributions to the work of Jesus on earth. And the reasonable assumption is that this church was not a well-off church, basing what Paul writes to another church, the church of Corinth, in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. The Macedonian churches were Thessaloniki, Berea, and Philippi. The Christ followers at Philippi did not give to the work of the Lord through the Apostle Paul out of their surplus. They did not give because it was easy to give. They didn't give because they could afford it. Rather, they gave because like all believers indwelt by the Spirit of God, they had to give to the work of Christ on earth. It is why they and why every Christian before and after exists. And it was a real sacrifice, which is the very reason Paul uses language from the Old Testament system of animal sacrifice, likening the sacrifice of giving to the sacrifices in the Old Testament, referring to their giving in verse 18 as a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Enter now verse 19, which is yet another classic verse, which oftentimes gets cherry-picked a ton being used to construct misleading sermons, bad application, 
or flat-out false theologies of prosperity. Do you know what I mean by peri-chicking? No, hopefully not. (laughs) Cherry-picking, right? It's when you just open the Bible, you go in, you grab a verse, and you pull it out, forget everything that, you know, is in there and everything else that it said and where it's, and just take that verse now and you make it what you say, what you want it to say, and you do with it whatever you want it to do. That's cherry-picking. Paul writes in verse 19, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And, of course, wouldn't you know that this is among one of the very favorite verses of the prosperity preachers. First thing I want to point out, though, about verse 19, is that the promise, and it is a promise in verse 19, but that promise is inextricably connected to verses 15 through 18 in the immediate context, and it's inextricably woven into 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2, which was the passage I just read about their poverty and affliction and all, and yet their faithfulness in giving in the broader context. Meaning what? Remember, exegesis is the process of pulling out of Scripture what is there. Not taking what we want and forcing it and imposing it upon the Scriptures. Again, making it say what we desire it to say. The promise of verse 19 Remembering that immediate context is contingent upon the obedience of each individual believer. Here exemplified by these Philippian Christians' obedience to sacrificially give of their material possessions to the work of God on earth. Which means you cannot rip this verse out of those contexts and peddle it as a name-it-claim-it, handy-dandy, self-centered, gimme-gimme-God-demand, as is used by the prosperity preachers. The promise is given in the context of God promising to meet their needs, their genuine needs, defined as the essentials of life. Because when they gave, it was from their survival chest of everyday needs. Whatever they were giving out of that chest to the work of Paul, the work of the Lord on earth, they were going to be lacking concerning their true, genuine essentials for life. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians. They gave out of a severe trial of affliction and extreme poverty. So it seems reasonable that their severe trial was, in fact, their poverty. And yet, they gave with an abundance of joy. Not grousing, not crabbing, not grumbling that they had to cough it up, or else. And so maybe you're asking, so my giving to the work of the Lord, is that important? Yes, it is, but not for the reason that you might think. Let's remember, God does not need the church to underwrite his fulfillment of the Great Commission. He's the creator of the 
universe. He doesn't need our participation in order to bring about his plans and purposes for mankind. He's quite capable without us in all ways. But the reason that this is so important to the believer is that God wants to bless the believers of the church by letting them be a part of God's grand supernatural plan for the world, which we call the Great Commission. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the Great Commission. And that is why everyone of mankind, everyone in mankind in human history has been created. But, obviously, relatively few enter into the blessing of being a part of God's work on earth. As Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. So while God's purposes for his plans for mankind are not contingent upon human cooperation. He does desire it. And that's why Paul writes to the Ephesian Christians in the uh, city of Ephesus, reminding them in chapter 2, verse 10, that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now what are those good works? The next chapter in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, chapter 3 in verses 9 and 10, gives us what that is. He says it is to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Simplifying this, God wants us to be a part of his plan because that is where the abundant life is found. The abundant life, again, oh, preachers of prosperity love to beat that one into the ground in all sorts of perverse and abusive ways. But this is the abundance of life or the abundant life that is spoken of in John chapter 10. Where Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I, Jesus, came that they, the sheep, meaning us, meaning we, for all time may have life and have it abundantly. So you see, verse 19 has nothing to do with the prosperity peddler's concept of the abundant life. Two days ago, picture please, this is a new Gulfstream G260 jet. Creflo Dollar, how many of you are familiar with just the name Creflo Dollar? <laughs> I wrote on the post where I found this out at, his name should be Creflo Dollars. But anyway, he is a prosperity preacher. Two days ago, he had up on his website asking 200,000 people to contribute $300 to the purchase of this brand new jet. 
so that he could get, he and the staff, quicker to get the gospel out to all the people of all the world and blah, blah, blah. This is to replace his old ailing jet that he has. I just found this morning, if, this, if we had had the first service, I wouldn't have even known this. I just found out, though, in that interim, that he has yanked this off his website. <laughs> Meaning he heard from a few folks about that, I guess. The biblical concept of what Jesus meant by the abundant life comprises the entirety of life. It doesn't just focus on prosperity, meaning wealth and money and materialism and and the goodies that this earth has to offer. The abundant life pertains to the Jewish idea of shalom, which covers everything in our lives from the moment we are born, every aspect of it. And Jesus says he came to give the abundant life to us. And the abundant life is not derived from a superficial gratification that we get from a new toy. It is derived only from following the steps of our Creator in His purposes for us. If you are ever confused by the book of Ecclesiastes and what that book is all about, that is precisely what it is all about. Grabbing for all the prosperity, and Solomon had the means to do so, and he did. We're even told in that text that he decided to conduct a test. And so I took part of my wealth, a very small part of his wealth, and he just started gratifying anything and everything you could think of. And his conclusion is vanity of vanities. All is vanity and striving after wind. Because at the end of the day, you still end up with nothing. And in chapter 12, he writes, Fear God. And keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Meaning, there it is. What's the answer to why we exist? Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And why? Because that is where the abundant life is to be found. So here's the deal. God does not need us. But he wants us. And so he, he invites us to participate, again, in that big plan, the Great Commission, one element of which pertains to underwriting that big plan. The Philippians were participants of the big plan, helping to underwrite it, even though they could not afford it. But what verse 19 says is that God promises to underwrite those who underwrite his plan. And who do so, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Reminding you of what Paul wrote last week when he said, The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. What I am about to say is not just pastoral baloney. What I am about to say is in that spirit that Paul said. Neither is what I'm about to say meant to be manipulative nor a drive-by guilting. 
I will say it only because it is absolutely before God true. I am always eager to do one part of my taxes each year. You might think, calculation of your refund? I don't know what a refund is. And by the way, just to clear up some misconceptions here, churches are 501c3 organizations, meaning they are tax-exempt. Pastors are not. Okay? I just, I, it, it kind of blew me away the first time I heard that, that people just, the, the general tenor out there seems to be that people think that pastors don't have to pay taxes. <laughs> I have that same privilege as the rest of you. Just so nobody feels left out. I'm a part. No, it's not my calculation of a refund. But rather, it is the calculation of Barbara and my annual giving. Honest to goodness truth. You see, Barbara and I were taught very early on in our infantile uh, stage of Christianity. We were adults at the time when we both came to Christ. That the old-fashioned, Old Testament norm of tithing, meaning 10% of one's income, is still in vogue in the New Testament. It has never been rescinded in the New Testament. It is not mentioned in the New Testament in that way, but neither has it ever been revoked. There are differing opinions on this by good people on both sides of the situation. But Barbara and I were raised to believe that 10% is the foundational starting point. Not the be-all, end-all, but the foundational starting point, which goes first and foremost to the church. That is called our offering. And then anything else that comes along during the year that we feel compelled by God to be a part of financially are gifts which are above that 10%. Next week, I'm going to share with you what our giving for 2014 is in the spirit of Philippians 4, 8. Last August, we had a gentleman here who went by the, uh, and, and he did not put this on himself, um, the moniker given to him was the Generosity Monk. Okay, Gary Hogue. Um, I happen to know Gary from our Team 500 meetings, and he is a stellar individual. But when he was speaking on the subject, I was sitting there listening, and he seemed to say that it didn't matter how much a Christian gave today. And if I'm interpreting what he said accurately, he pretty much dismissed the idea of the tithe of the Old Testament as being not applicable today. As I said, there are good people on both sides of this issue. If that is what he meant, I just want you to understand that I categorically disagree based, one, on conviction. But conviction is not authoritative. We each as Christians have different convictions on different things, which means they are basically a law or a rule for us. But if it's not authoritative, meaning from the Word of God, then your conviction is your conviction. I want to make that clear. Secondly, I disagree by virtue of experience. 
experience is not authoritative either. We all have different experiences, some good, some bad. They are valid, but they are not authoritative. But third, I disagree categorically based on study and example from the Word of God, which is authoritative. The point, however, that I know that the generosity monk wanted to make by knowing Gary is that if the Christian is rigidly locked into any percentage of giving and then you somehow think that the rest is yours to do with as you wish, you do not understand the biblical purpose, the biblical beauty, or the biblical blessing of giving freely to the Lord. A cheerful giver is one who gives with honest-to-goodness joy. And it's real joy because that joy is supernatural because it is grounded in the soul-deep conviction that the giving truly is an investment into eternal things and not in things that will crumble. We see many testaments in our state, especially here in central Maine, to the generosity of Harold and Bibi Alfond. And thank God for their magnum, <laughs> for their generosity, their magnanimity. But hospitals will one day crumble. Universities will collapse. Ice rinks will melt. And all of it will eventually Turn to dust. Which is why Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 19, Do not lay up for yourself treasures in, on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot consume and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then what is the very next verse after that? Where your treasure is there will your heart be also. Have you ever had something that you really, really wanted, but you couldn't afford? <laughs> no. No, that doesn't occur. <laughs> it might be a carbon fiber road bike. <laughs> or a snowmobile. Or a kitchen remodel. With a six-burner Viking gas range. <laughs> or it could be a new guitar new curtains, whatever. You can fill in the blank a hundred ways over. And let's pretend that even with credit, you still wanted to jumpstart your acquisition. I mean, you wanted to have a, a, at least a, a good beginning to whatever it is you were going to buy. Isn't it amazing that we always finagle a miracle of provision, don't we? Don't we always manage to come up with whatever we need to get whatever we want? And why is that? It's because where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. Yes, I know I inverted the syntax of that verse, but it is equally true. We can somehow always afford what is really important to us. For we American Christians, do you know what the real hindrance to God's blessing our giving is? 
Paul said it, we talked about it last week in his secret. It is a lack of contentment that compels us to incessantly look for more, for bigger, for better, for shinier, for newer, and to obtain it as soon as possible. And credit companies are eager to help. The word investment, it's an interesting word. It is so abused today. Some have the nerve to call taxes investments. Those same people would probably call going to a casino engaging an investment firm. The word is abused when someone is trying to make a foolish expenditure sound like a smart idea. You're not buying encyclopedias, Mr. and Mrs. Cripe, newlyweds, wet behind the ears. You're making an investment in the future of your children. Oh, where do I sign? The story of my free encyclopedias. You can find it in The Proper Pursuit of Prosperity. <laughs> for his walk with God and some of his writings. This is what C.T. Stead penned. A hymn comes from part of it. C.T. Stead writes, Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with further bur fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, now let me say thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I'll know, I know I'll say, t'was worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I don't know that C.T. Studd had Solomon and his writings in mind when he wrote this poem, but it expresses the essence of the book of Ecclesiastes. And that is that life is absurdity if not lived for the eternal purposes for which the Creator has made us. 
the next two weeks, and then the third week will be Easter Sunday. The next two weeks, I'm going to trail on this and do two more weeks of giving, uh, talking about giving financially. And nobody can accuse Bill Crave. You can accuse me of a lot of things, probably most of which are true. One thing you can't accuse me of is beating to death. The dig deeper, dig harder. Give us that faith, man. Go in there and pull it out. Come on. You know, it's the Lord's money. And Okay, this will be now the third time in 24 years that I've spoken at any length about giving. Three in 24 years. Count them. All right? All right. Let me have you stand. Remember, it is Advanced Sunday. If the men could hang around for just 10, 15 minutes at tops, we'd appreciate it, and so will you. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for everybody that came here today. I pray, oh God, that by your Spirit, instead of people walking out today because of the subject matter today in the next couple of weeks, would just sigh or clear their throat or whatever. Lord, I know that your heart truly is to show them that you are a wonder-working God of faith who knows no bound and no limit to your generosity and your ability to take care of our needs, yes, but oh, so much more. And that instead, Lord, of staying away because of the kind of challenge that it is, that instead they would be excited to learn what could be a new chapter or an improved chapter in their walk of faith. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for these messages in advance. Because we know firsthand, Barbara and I, and I know others, of the amazing, miraculous power that you are pleased to shower upon your faithful believers. And it's a good thing. Keep everybody safe going home. In your name, amen.